It's a test tube Thursday, so Dan Riskin, our science expert, joins us. Nice to have you. Good to talk to you. Well, you have a lovely mop of full hair, but uh, you've got some new findings on hair loss. Yes, I do indeed. This is a, a study out of the UK. There's this great big database called the Biobank, and we keep revisiting it. I keep seeing press releases come out of it. There are tens of thousands of people in the UK who have volunteered to be part of this, where they fill out surveys all the time about whether they're depressed or what they're eating or how they're feeling. And then they're tracked in terms of their medical care. And whenever they get a disease or something like that, it goes into the database. And because there's so many people, even rare diseases can turn into this. Um, we've talked about things like coffee is good for you and it shows that it you know it helps you live longer that's from the same data set but this particular angle on the data set comes from the male pattern baldness and so uh it, what they did is they took 72,000 uh people from this data set for whom they have data on exactly how bald or not bald they are and then they looked at the genes of these people they have a, a full genome for everybody in the data set and what they found was there are a bunch of genes that have been implicated before that are that contribute to male pattern baldness, but they found a bunch of other ones that are super rare um, because with a smaller data set, if there's one that only affects less than 1% of the population, it's almost impossible to tease out of there. But when you have that many people in your data set, 72,000, you can start to find rarer genetic things. And so there's not a cure that comes from this or even a predictive thing that you can sort of take a swab yet, but they now have a better uh, idea of what goes on. And what I found interesting is there is in fact, I mean, it's there are like 350 different genetic factors but one of them, uh, or a bunch of them, are on the X chromosome. And people always talk about it being inherited from the mom. And this suggests that there is some truth to that, although, of course, it's not a perfect one-to-one -one correlation about whether your maternal grandfather was bald and whether you'll be bald. So uh, a new study using mice is finding... <laughs> this makes... It, mice research or mouse research always makes me laugh because apparently there's a connection between menthol and Alzheimer's. And now I've got this vision of mice chewing on candy. Yeah, exactly. Or smoking menthol cigarettes or, or whatever it is. Um, yeah, this is, uh, it's neat because I sort of, there's a, there's a fact that there are a lot of diseases that affect the nervous system. And when you get them, you often lose the ability to smell. And this happens with Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, schizophrenia. And I sort of thought of that as like, well, that's that's not really a, that's a bit of a dead end. But what these researchers are saying is, well, that 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 suggests that the the ability to smell is is connected somehow, and that may be where part of the cure lies. So before that loss of the sense of smell, as people are coming down with these diseases, maybe smell has some kind of a link to the system. And that way of thinking doesn't intuitively make sense to me. But apparently, uh, that doesn't it doesn't matter whether it makes sense to me or not, because what they've found is that if they take mice that have been uh, given Alzheimer's disease, uh, they can improve their cognitive abilities by having those mice smell menthol. And so, and, and in fact, if they put the menthol in front of the mice, but they block it so the mice can't smell anymore with a different drug, then it doesn't have the effect. It's actually the experience of smelling menthol that seems to affect the way their immune system uh, jumps into the fray against Alzheimer's. And so uh, it, it seems to, to turn down the knob on a couple of factors that make the disease go worse, and it helps the, the mice do better. So no, again, no, no drug that comes from this yet, but it's a promising lead that maybe down the road when people get a certain set of, of uh, diagnoses, there will be smelling salts that they're prescribed that they have to smell. The, every day you have to take a big whiff of this you know, bag of, of, uh, of leaves, and that's going to help make the disease take longer to take hold or, or may prevent it altogether. It's, it's a very interesting direction. Okay, so it probably tells 
tells you more than you want to know about me that my Facebook feed often features video from a guy who has a cat named Kermit. And mm. he and the cat are absolutely inseparable. And the cat purrs all the time. And apparently there's some new research on cat purring. Yeah, this is neat. Uh, cat purring is an enigma. Uh, people can't figure it out. First of all, like, you know, house cats purr, but a lot of like wild cat species purr as well, like lynx and even cougar can purr, but not tigers and not lions. And so one of the questions is why do some cats purr and not others? But then the, uh, another question is like, well, how does it actually work and what does it actually do for the cats? And so what we know now is that it starts in the vocal cords, um, but it's, it resonates with different bones in the throat, like the hyoid bone that make it sort of resonate and have a, a bigger amplitude. Why they do it, maybe it's just a communication thing, but they also do it when they're alone is it because they're happy well cats sometimes purr when they're in pain as well so it's thought that maybe it has some kind of a, a healing effect or, or or some kind of analgesic effect people don't know why they do it but this new paper that just came out gives more information about how they do it and what they did for this is they had some cats that uh, no cats were harmed for this experiment these cats had to be put down because of other diseases and their owners consented to their bodies being used for this research and then after that it happened and after the cats had been put down they isolated the voice box of these cats, the, the larynx, where the noise comes from, and they just put air through it with a, an air pump, but nice moist air to see what would happen. And they were able to get these things to, to rattle at the purring frequencies without any kind of brain attached to them. So people have always thought that cats have to like send a signal to their throat to purr, but this suggests that if they just breathe with the right sort of pressure of air, it'll vibrate on its own at that frequency. And what's really interesting is that it's actually technically the same as vocal fry, you know, that way of talking. Yeah, well, the cat's purring, it's really talking like Lisa, you know, like uh, Lindsay Lohan. So, um, <laughs> you know, that's just another reason to think of your cat a little differently, Kermit or otherwise. But um, it's, I, I love it because it's something you can go see a cat purr anytime, but it's still baffling scientists and we still don't know why they do it. And what a surprise, you've got a bat story. Well, come on. I mean, it's it's uh, it's Histiotis uh, alienis, which is a species of oh. bat down in Brazil that is only known from one specimen. It was collected in 1916. Uh, this biologist caught and killed a bat, put it in a in a jar, and it's the only member of its species that's ever been seen. But lo and behold, in 2018, somebody caught a second one. It was just about 200 kilometers from where the first one was caught. Do we know anything about what this means for the population numbers or even what they're doing? No, we don't know anything. A female was caught in 1916. This is a male that's been caught this time. Uh, they measured the living daylights out of it, but we still don't know uh, anything about this species other than the fact that it's still around, or at least it was on you know, November 21, 2018, when this one was caught and promptly put into a jar. This is what kills me about these conservation biologists. They're like, we found the rarest species. Now it's in, it in a jar. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, I mean, like, could you have let it go? And that's, there's a shift that's happening there. But uh, for this particular individual, unfortunately, the scientists who spotted it, uh, put it in the jar. And it does make sense because you have to measure it and, you know, be able to tell it from other species and have a way of going back to the original data. But uh, it's just a little bit sad that a species so rare ends up in a jar. Every yeah. Time it's what if it's the last one? Yeah, it could be, and then that's on their hands. But uh, it's uh, it's uh, they're just bats are really good at hiding. I'm sure there are more. It's just they're really hard to find. But I, I there are some great pictures they took of it before they put it in the jar, and it's it's a pretty cute bat. <laughs> Super. Thanks a lot.
Thank you. That's Dan Riskin, our science expert, who joins us on Thursdays. Uh, don't forget, of course, we've got our car full of cash contest. The keyword coming out at 815, the actual matchup at 835, and you could win a year's lease on a Nissan and $10,000 in cash to boot. So maybe you can take your new car somewhere and spend that money.